Hey everyone, I'm Britt. Welcome to Educate Me, a podcast where we share stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. My guest this week is Dr. Tony Cliff, Senior Lecturer and Assessment Officer at the University of Chester. We chat about how he finished his PhD under time by setting boundaries, treating his PhD like a job, and learning to say no. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes, yeah, so hi everyone. Uh, thank you, Britt, for having me today. So uh, I'm Dr. Anthony Cliff, or I go by Tony, um, and I'm a senior lecturer in geography in the University of Chester. And I also hold multiple roles within that as well. So I'm the department's assessment officer, uh, and I'm also an editor for the International Journal for Students as partners. I finished my D, my PhD uh, last spring, so 2019, um, and that was all about using uh, UAVs or, or drones, as you might well know, um, and I basically recreated the environment virtually, making 3D models, adding some annotations to that, and basically seeing how that can be used for uh, students, particularly geoscience students, before they went on fieldwork and after fieldwork. Um, and actually, I was only thinking about this the other day. It's quite ironic that when I did do that in, you know, last year and finished it, it was one of those things is, oh, it's nice to have, but now everyone's talking about doing um, <laughs> online field work and because of COVID. Yeah, so, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's actually been quite important, um, which is actually nice to see part of that research actually having uh, an impact uh, now because when I did it last year, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's nice. It's a bit pie in the sky. It might well come in the future all of a sudden the future's here, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so tell me more about being a senior lecturer. So one thing I'm learning, well, I knew all this before, but um, the way things operate in different countries is all yep. very different. So we don't have that title. So what is your job actually, like what's your job description or what, what's a typical day for you as a senior lecturer? Yeah, um, so yeah, it, it's interesting in terms of different terms. Some universities even here don't use the term um, senior lecturer. Um, the only difference that I personally know, the difference between a lecturer and a senior lecturer here, is that you um, have control over some modules, so you'll lead uh, some modules and potential some programs. So there's a little bit more responsibility um, than a typical someone just coming in just to deliver lectures. So um uh, so for me, I typically teach master's students um, in the department. So we have um, a course that looks at, so it's a master's program that looks at flooding um, and risk management and that kind of stuff. Um, so I typically teach on that. I teach uh, UAV methods, mapping, that kind of stuff. Um, and luckily that's all being delivered online. That was always going to be an online program. It was brand new for last year. So I was brought on to support that because of the PhD, um, having that online pedagogy kind of research background and also the UAB aspect. Um, I also teach both the postgrads and undergrads research methods. So I'm a mixed methods researcher, I'm a pragmatist, so I'm well familiar in, in using both domains of research. So I teach our undergrads, that particularly dissertation students and, and level fives. And certainly for now, for uh, our postgrads, all about, um, say, those different research methods from your interviews to your questionnaires to using some uh, mapping software, that kind of stuff. So a typical day is a lot of admin, um, really. <laughs> <laughs> so um, absolutely love teaching. I love teaching the students, all the different varieties. But that's a very small part of the job, if I'm being honest, as a senior lecturer. A lot of it is uh, a lot of marking. So it says assessment officer. So um, 
I tend to cover a lot of the assessment side of stuff if students are potentially struggling or um, we might have an, a malpractice case. So going through them, sorting that kind of stuff out, making sure all the marks are in, all the other lecturers have put their marks in correctly for the end of year module assessment boards, which we've just had. Um, and so, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot, I've made a lot of preparing and because we teach a lot online or I certainly did before COVID, it's not just developing um, a brand new, brand new slides or anything like that. You've got to do that, but you've also got to develop some videos to go along with that. So it's right. a lot of, it's a lot of the, the background stuff the students don't potentially see um, rather than that, just, you know, that one hour, two hour face to face lecture that you have. Um, and because we were online and because it was the first year that this course is run, uh, a lot of my time is actually taken up with pastoral stuff. So um, I, I don't know if potentially in Canada, they might have this, but we have personal academic tutors where, you know, that's your go-to. Um, but because I started um, a month after the term, so I just started into the new role, I didn't necessarily have any particular students that were my PAT. So I just said to everyone on the course, well, if you've got any questions, feel free. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm here. Um, and and that's, that's dangerous, Tony. I think it was naivety, I think, at the start, um, brand new role. But, um, but no, it's been brilliant because I've, I've had both undergrads and postgrads um, dealing with their kind of issues and talking with them. And, and it's been actually nice because to make that time for them to actually get to know them, um, they're a little bit wary being brand new on the course. So was I, you know, first time in this kind of role. Um, so yes, that's a typical day, really. Uh, a lot of that, yeah. I mean, a lot of meetings as well, actually. Now, um, you know, a lot of meetings have, have come about, which take up your day. Um, but yeah, and then it depends really as well. It, it ebbs and flows. If you've got marking in, then you know you're in for a busy week, uh, and you're going to be working, yeah. <laughs> you know, over your typical normal hours. Um, but then I, I tried to be. I will probably come on to this later on, talk about the PhD. But I was always quite strict of what was work time, what was you know home time, and and chill time. So I've tried to keep that uh, in this role. Um, I tried to go against the norm of normalizing academia in terms of overworking, it's glamorized, that kind of stuff. I was, I'm not into that. Of course, sometimes you have to work, you know, above and beyond. It's, you know, you, you, you don't go into um, lectureship for an easy life, that's for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't go in there to, to, to chill. So uh, there are times, so, I've just been on leave for 12 days. I've just yeah. finished our academic year. Um, and so I technically only work part-time for the senior lecturer role. It's only three days a week, but typically I'm working six days a week and you get paid for free because there's just so much stuff to do. Right, yeah. Um, and certainly coming up to our module assessment boards where we're checking all the marks, making sure they're correct so that our final years can get their uh, awards. You know, working every hour under the sun, it was incredibly busy, but then... Yeah. January, February time, I had no no teaching, so it was very slack, and so it, it ebbs and flows. Similar to the PhD, really, you have times yeah. where you're incredibly busy and other times. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's good preparation. I think doing a PhD for for lectureship. <laughs> yeah, I feel like doing a PhD could be a good preparation for a lot of things. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I I was saying uh, yesterday to to someone how I'm really gonna miss like time being my own in a sense. Uh, where in a PhD, like, yeah, I have a bunch of side projects and I do a bunch of different things, but generally like I decide when and on what I'm working. Um, and, and I'll miss that a lot. Do you find you still have a bit of that flexibility? Um, I do. Yeah. So I, I work at a, a small team within the department. We're called team frame. Um, and they're incredibly supportive. We know what needs to be done. 
go away and do it you know what's best to work um, yeah but when you do sit in you know bureaucratic kind of system of a department when things need to happen at a certain time and you've got demands of students um it can be quite it can be quite a challenge and and as you mentioned there it's one thing i absolutely adored on the phd i had very very great supervisors who you know they'd only check up on you once a month you give them a feedback report they were not i hate when people breathe over my neck and do yeah. this do that um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then it took me a while. It took me a good couple of months to adjust back into the, you know, the, you know, you have a boss and they tell you what to do and, you know, it has to be done. Whereas you say the PhD, it's your work. You do it when you want, um, do what you want. I absolutely love that style, but then to flick back and realize that actually I'm part of a bigger team now rather than, you know, just myself and there's other consequences for not doing stuff. So, yeah, quite an adjustment period, but I'm, I'm fully up to speed with that now. Um, whether I like it or not is a, is a different matter. <laughs> yeah, but you still, yeah, for me, it's like, like I have other projects that I work on or like I research assistant for other people or teaching assistant mm. for other people. And I find that that helps with the, like you're, you're still accountable to other people, but they're not like, oh, are you in your chair from 9 a.m. Mm. to 5 p.m.? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're lucky in the sense of the way our department uh, runs and certainly our, our head of department is is brilliant because, again, you know, as long as the work's done, they're not particularly bothered, you know, uh, where you do it, when you do it. Um, and so typically I work eight till around about four, half four on a, on a typical normal day. Um, and that was mainly just around beating traffic to get into work. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I live about an hour away um, from, from where our university is, so to drive in. Uh, it's just to be those times and they're incredibly flexible with that um and that's great and it's similar to the students as well they're happy with that as long as you don't have a class in the evening if you do yeah. stay or um be able to say some some lectures they'll, they'll reply to emails at, at two in the morning because that's just their working that's their preferred working methods um but yeah there's there's not particularly i mean it could be a lot worse as much as i say i hate people breathing over me and stuff if they're in a different department i think it would have been a lot worse um so yeah i can't complain too much yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's really good. Um, uh, I was going to ask you something. Oh, yeah. So around like the pastoral system. Yeah, we really don't have that here at all. Um, all In fact, like the first time I heard of like pastoral care outside of the church Mm. was literally when I was teaching in the UK. Right. (laughs) And uh, and I was like, oh, what's this? And yeah, this this idea of there being like heads of year and this Mm. idea of... um, well, houses and all that sort of stuff. Like we had houses kind of in elementary school here, but it was really around like intramural sports where you played oh, okay. in yeah, houses yeah. <laughs> and that was it. Um, and so like, I think that is one thing that I see lacking in the Canadian mm. system, or at least like in Alberta where, where I am, is that students often feel like they're just a number in the yep. system. And you see that like, I follow our university's Reddit page because uh, you really see like, okay, well, at least like these are the students who are going to anonymously vocalize mm. uh, their frustrations and it's things like they can't get into classes they want to, or they feel like they're just a number or um, they're, they're really lonely because especially now working from home, like they just don't have any. Uh, so how does um, that like pastoral system work at, at your university? Yeah. So I'm, um Again, different universities probably do operate differently, yeah. but in, in, in Chester and certainly the geography department, when, when I was, so I was, I was actually a student of the department, I did my undergrad and, and masters um, 
in the department. So, oh, nice. Yeah, so on, on the very first day, they they basically said that, you know, you're not a number. Uh, you know, you are a student, we want to get to know you. Um, and I think the staff that they had in the department and they employed in the department were people who got into academia because they wanted to teach. Um, and I think this is the distinct difference between uh, teaching mostly teaching university like Chester compared to a red brick potentially somewhere else, which is all about research. Right. Um, I think the people that they have in there is, you know, they want to teach, they want to develop students. Um, and that comes through in, in everything in our department that's drummed into us from day one. You know, you're, you are a student and, and because you're a student, we understand that you have uh, different backgrounds. You've got, um, you know, different stuff going on. You might be a carer or, you know, you might have, some other issues or whatever, you know, let us know, let us help you, let us develop. And, and we have that nice collegial kind of community vibe, um, which is one of our concerns moving into potentially online next year is how do we get that community feel um, right. remotely rather than face-to-face because we make such an effort, certainly in first year, in induction of, of getting that across. And, and as a geography department, we did a lot of residential field work and, you know, in the day, you'd, you'd go out, you'd do your field work, and then you spend your evening with the lecturers, and it's a little bit outside of right, the lecture yeah, yeah. hall, and yeah. you know you get to you get to see them as people. And yeah. I think as you know, you, you come from typically you say undergrads, they they've gone through school, they've done um, they've done their high school, they've done their college, teachers are teachers, and you know it's yes sir, you know, or yes ma'am, you know, it's it's very formal. Whereas yeah. <laughs> you know you, you get to higher ed, and it's it's like oh sorry it's tony not not doctor and you're like no just call me tony um, yeah you know it's breaking those boundaries down um and so we've always had that system and, and certainly our university employs the pat system so um, personal academic tutor so every student gets assigned um one tutor for the whole three years um and that's their go-to point so there'll be points throughout the year where the staff member will, will say, look, do you want a meeting? Let, let's catch up. How are you getting on? You know, what are you struggling with? What, what do you work? What do you need? Um, and then they have that for the whole three years and vice versa. If a student has an issue, they can go directly to that one particular contact um, that they have. So their tutor. And again, we can escalate those things up to different services if they need to. Um, but it's just nice. I think that they know that, you know, we're here for them and that we see them as people, not numbers. Um, yeah. And it's, it's nice to say, cause I've had say one year now in the role in um, those students that, you know, I had brief uh, interactions with in, in year six, they're now leaving. Um, and it's quite sad because of, you know, even those short few months I've been here, you've developed those relationships and you know what goals they want and, and, um, and how they act. And certainly as assessment officer for, for the postgrads, you know, when potentially an, an academic malpractice case comes up and you're like, oh, well, that person, I know them, they typically wouldn't go out to, to cheat. So what's the issue? You know, and you get you get down to it. Whereas if you didn't know that, it would be a nice, you know, it would be a clear cut case. You see that there's um, no references there and you're just like, you know, right, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're guilty kind of thing. You haven't <laughs> yeah. known the students. Um, yeah. Of course, you're still going to follow the system, but, you know, you, you, can, you can get a bit more background about it of why they might have done that or what issues what are they struggling with um and so yeah it's nice and certainly i've benefited to that as a student and it's something that i when i then joined the phd went to a different institution i wanted to keep that ethos um you know with fellow phd students and you know certainly undergrads that i might have taught as well um in the other institution and then certainly now it's part of the role to um to look out for for students and it's something that we take pride in certainly certainly something that i 
that I love. I absolutely love um, being part of the, getting to know the students and being that pastoral um, care for them. So, yeah. Yeah, that sounds really beneficial because um, I'm thinking of even like I've done my I did a lot of my undergrad at the same institution that I've done my master's and PhD at um, recommended or not. Um, <laughs> and uh, one thing I found is that unless you actively try to find or create community, mm-hmm. you it's very easy to not be part of any community um, at such a large university. And I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say my university too is very much trying to straddle being a top research intensive institution and being a top place for teaching and learning. And mm-hmm. yeah, the two I don't think, necessarily always go together, do they? <laughs> yeah, like maybe you can't be everything to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think honestly, I think they're doing a, a pretty good job of trying to do both at the same time. Um, and then COVID happened. So, um, <laughs> Uh, so we'll see where things go. They just released a new strategy and all that. So we'll see, we'll kind of see what happens. But, um, I think, yeah, like the institution has to have a mandate or has to make a choice and say, Hey, we are going to support our students in this way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know, even the, the research intensive universities, you know, the, the, the academic staff who publish loads of papers to get loads of money. I understand obviously, you know, the, you know, students do take up a lot of your time, um, but, you know, you don't go into, I personally don't think you should go into education if you don't have any simulation of you want to help students. Um, you know, if you're just after the money, you're just after research, then sure, these are the ways to go about it. Um, and it's similar to supervisors as well. Like I, throughout the PSSA, I have brilliant supervisors, but I've seen supervisory teams where they take on the role of a supervisor just to enhance their career. Yeah. And it's like, don't take on that role if you're not going to support your students, you know, because yeah. you're not going to get anything from it. Your students certainly aren't going to get anything from it. Um, so yeah, if you're going to join a university and, and okay, if you are going to be publishing loads and you're going to be very research intensive and students might not necessarily be high on your list, but at least get them in the top three uh, of your priorities <laughs> when you are teaching them, you know, just make an effort. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I mean, at our institution for sure, it's expected that you take on students. Um, mm-hmm. And so you might not want to teach and until you get a grant that kind of buys you out of the teaching load, yeah. you, you're pretty much expected to. Um, and I mean, I'm always of the mindset. I mean, if you have to do it, you might as well be good at it. Yeah. And, and put some effort into it. Uh, but uh, but that's not always the case. I mean, actually, like at, at my university, I've been really lucky and I've had all really amazing professors. Um, and my supervisors have been incredibly supportive. Um, and like you said, like uh, we were talking about like taking on all these different roles. So I've taken on a lot of different roles. <laughs> and uh, someone asked me recently, they were like, oh, like, what does your supervisor think about you doing all these other things? And I was like, oh, like she she's super, super supportive. Um, and has really like encouraged me to take on leadership roles and, and Mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. I mean, personality wise, we're quite different. I'm quite extroverted. She's quite introverted. Um, uh, but in terms of like knowing that I've got a cheerleader in my corner, like absolutely a hundred percent. And I think that makes a big difference. It does. Yeah. And say similar to you, I've had excellent um, supervisors over the years and, and in between my masters and my PhD I spent uh, around about two years as a research assistant for mm. various different people um, doing vastly different projects from um, community um, uh, carbon initiatives so trying to reduce a whole village's carbon 
to looking at how gender impacts um, typically female academics and their publication uh, rate for the research excellence framework in the UK and obviously how they're hindered uh, in terms of like childcare and, and getting looked over for promotion because of that kind of stuff. So, you know, vastly different projects, but within that I've had brilliant uh, supervisors who really pushed me and say, you know, develop new skills. And but I always knew that I had a safety net there, that they were very supportive. Um, and I think for supervisors to say, I trust you go away and, and do this particular thing is I think it's invaluable for students to, to have that confidence knowing that you've got people in your corner like you say you've got a cheerleader um, yeah. because you know uh, as every PhD student goes through it can be quite isolating at times and you know you get rejections quite often from papers and it can be quite uh, you know I, I always say that everything in the PhD tries to make you fail at it <laughs> um, <Yeah>. so <laughs> yeah, you know and it, and it feels like that and that's why you do need people in that who've been there they've gone through it and if they're putting their trust in you and their faith and you must be onto something you know that you're doing quite well so yeah it's nice to have yeah and I was thinking too recently like reflecting on this whole idea of that like a PhD well we said at the beginning like a PhD prepares you for all sorts of things but yeah. at the same time a PhD prepares you for very little in terms mm -hmm. of um like even depending on what type of PhD you're in even something like project management where um which is coming up, like I see a lot of people pivoting from doing academic work into project management because they mm -hmm. then have that experience. But there's a lot of people who work in labs and things like that who kind of just do the day-to-day -day and they, they get their PhD, but they were never in charge of a project. They never had to budget. They never had to manage people. And then all of a sudden they're a PI in a lab uh, and they're having to be HR and be a boss and be uh the um treasurer and like all these things that they just weren't prepared for so one thing that my supervisor did for me and i mean i've had other experiences that i think have then helped with this one but um we got a teaching and learning grant from our university and so she was pretty much like okay this is your project now <laughs> and uh and has let me um uh, do the project management and the planning and the keeping everyone else on track which like we all know hurting academics is like hurting uh, cats. It is. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so, but that's been a really good experience for me in terms of now I know when I go into my first round of like, okay, I have my own grant and now I'm mm. hiring my own team. Um, I know like, okay, what I would do differently or what I would still do a certain way and all that sort of stuff. So having a supervisor who creates those opportunities as well for you is just so invaluable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, like you say, it's those opportunities where, say, typically those those certainly the um, the inter PhD years. So before I started the PhD, say having those different roles and you know, say my background was my uh, research to that point um, was all about aviation and sustainable um, aviation and that kind of stuff. But then to then jump into you know uh, the gender difference of academics and research, vastly different, completely different fields. Um, but I was like, yeah, look, they're giving me an opportunity. Let's take it. Let's learn something new. Um, and like you say, having that opportunity to to manage projects and manage teams, because as you mentioned there, PhD prepares you for a lot, and it does in terms of you know your time management, particular skills that you might develop, you know your writing, your research skills, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, and personal project management, it helps you with. But like you say, they just prepare you very little in terms of often 
you're very siloed, you're working with yourself, maybe you're two supervisors, and realistically, you're only managing yourself. The supervisors aren't going to do any work for you. You know, you're not yeah. particularly managing them. Uh, so like you say, but in, in real life, very rarely are you then ever going to have a project just by yourself. So it's that inter-team working, which I don't think you get on a PhD. So it tells, it, you know, you can develop all those skills and they're absolutely brilliant. But like you say, you know, if you get thrust into a leadership position, a PI, and you've not had that experience, whereas luckily... On my PhD, uh, going back to the whole idea of community, um, yeah. we had a very tight-knit community. Um, and so how that formed was when we all started. So the University of... So it was the uh, John Moores University is where I did my PhD. Um, and just before I started, they put a big funding uh, bid out there to have, I think it was 100 PhD students across the board they wanted to get in. Um, I guess supervisors bid for that money. They then put a PhD idea out there and then you bid for it. Um, oh, wow. So um, I might as well tell you the full story how I basically got onto the PhD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so, um, so I finished my master's. Uh, I was just doing uh, some research uh, assistant work, and it got to a point where it's not about two years. I'd worked on qual stuff, quantitative stuff, mixed methods. There wasn't much left to learn currently in that role, and you couldn't progress unless you had a PhD. So it was a bit of a stalemate, and then the university was looking to cut some uh, funding. They were looking to save some money. Typically, you know, uh, research assistants first to go. So they said, yeah. I'm really sorry, Tony, you know, your funding's not getting renewed. The contract's ending in July. I was like, great, what do I do now? Do I go back into industry? That's one of my potential options, but yeah. wasn't really for me. I love the research side of stuff. Um, the next day, my boss says to me, oh, wow, Tony, you know, one door closes, another opens. Here's a PhD just being put online in, in uh, John Moore's, all about using UAVs and field work. That's right up your street. It's got that aviation kind of element to it. Um, it's closest to home for you. Um, apply for it. You know, it's fully funded studentship for three years. And I was like, oh, I didn't want to do a PhD. Like, what am I, you know, it was never my plan. If, if my plan worked out, I would have been in air traffic control. I wouldn't even be doing a master's. <laughs> you wouldn't even be here. Um, so... Uh, so I applied for it, went for the interview, managed to get it, finished off my contract, started in September. But then loads of other PhD students also started. Um, and so, again, a difference. I'd moved from geography then to an education faculty. Right. Um, although we're still doing a very geography, geoscience PhD, yeah. it was situated in geography. Uh, sorry, situated in education and sport as well. They were like a cross-disciplinary kind of uh, faculty. Oh, interesting, yeah. So they put us in a, uh, a hot desk room, and when I started, there was maybe four or five of us who treated it like a job. We were in pretty much every day, uh, yeah. Monday to Thursday, I was in typically. And so we got to a point around about two, two, three months in, where we were talking all the time, we were swapping stuff, and you know, starting to feel that own, own community of, of PhD students across different disciplines, um, that the, the research manager basically said, look, this is a hot desk room, not for you guys, just to sit in and, and you know, take the uh, the desk. So here's an office for yourselves. Go take this office. So we oh, were nice. Like, Excellent. So, so we were just referred to as H105, and that was what our <laughs> office number was. Um, and it was great. You know, it was a crew of five of us, and say we had a psychologist in there. We had, like, a sports uh, coach science. Um, we had a chemist. Uh, there was me as a geographer. Um, so it was a nice mix of different people. And because we developed that community, we really developed as researchers and as PhD students because we were then helping each other, like say project managing each other, 
um, swapping ideas from different angles of research. Yeah. We're actually just finishing a paper, actually writing about the interdisciplinary nature of PhD students and how vital that is. And, and basically what we're putting forward is if you're a geographer, don't just stick with geography students because you, you might do different projects, um, but you all have a very, um, you all grow up as geographers with a very particular mindset of how the world looks. Whereas for a psychologist or a sports scientist, they've been brought up with different ways, different viewpoints and having that discussion of different viewpoints, which is actually um, even more pertinent now when you start looking at, you know, um, the Black Lives uh, Matters movement and that kind of stuff in terms of seeing other people's viewpoint and being open to those discussions. Um, because certainly as a geographer, anyway, we're quite protective of, of um, you know, uh, where we come from as geographers and what we stand for. Whereas a psychologist, again, well, this is the right way. This is how I would do it. So being open to those discussions, I think, has made us a lot more better as people, not only students. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me too, finding, um, interdisciplinary groups uh, to be a part of has been really beneficial in terms of like, okay, now I'm with people that we're not really competing. Um, Whereas if you're always with your discipline, like it just felt, sometimes it just felt like you were competing with one another for grants or awards or, or publications sometimes even. Whereas then when I'm with engineers or whatever, I have a lot of engineering friends recently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, It's, uh, one, it makes that I can explain my research very quickly and, and, and explain the problems of my research very quickly to non-experts. So that has definitely helped. Um, but in terms of just feeling supported, uh, you know, like you're all doing a PhD or, or a master's or whatever. So you feel that support, but then there's not that same level of competition. Did you find the same thing? Absolutely. Yeah. That competition thing is, is key because, um, you know, countless times I've heard PhD students give a snippet of their research and like, oh, I can't say any more because they've got the fear of someone oh, stealing yeah. their research, you know, or even academics do it now, you know, they, they don't tell people what their research is because they don't want people stealing it. Um, well, like you say, because we weren't in competition with each other, that I think that did open the door to be, you know, as freely as you can uh, to talk about stuff. But competition did exist in terms of, you know, I look at um, part of the group and, you know, they may well have uh, published something and I'd be like, ah, I want to publish now. Or, you know, they might be get accepted to a conference and it's like, well, they're accepted to a conference. Maybe I should. Um, and so there was that inter-team competition always, yeah, you know, between yeah, yeah. the group. But it, it wasn't, but it was very friendly competition. Yeah. It wasn't a case of like, you know, like, ha, I published first and then, you know, yeah. I'm better than everyone. It was just more <laughs> of a case of trying to spare yourself on to be like, oh, right, okay, I need to catch up here or, you know, do different stuff. But, and that was one of the challenges in terms of me personally on the PhD was, um, like, whereabouts am I up to? Like, oh, well, you've, you've collected your data and you're only a year in. I've only just finished my lit review, but then having to realise that actually you say with different disciplines, different um, departments as well, and you have different ways of working, but it's hard not to compare. Um, everyone says, you know, the, you know don't, don't compare to any other PhD student, but it's impossible uh, to do. <laughs> it, it is really impossible to do. And, uh, and yeah, it's like one side that you said, like there's a benefit to it. Like, yeah, you see someone else publishing or getting something. You're like, Oh, like, like I should be doing that too. Maybe I should be doing that. But then I caught myself doing that. Even today <laughs> I was like scrolling Facebook and I see someone, she's like, I think she's 
maybe two years ahead of me. Mm. Um, and so one, I have to remember, okay, she's two years ahead of me, but has now published like four book chapters. Wow. And, yeah. And I was like, oh, like, why am I not doing that? Why, like, why can't I do that? And um, a bit of feeling like, oh, maybe I should be doing that. But then like reminding myself, no, like I'm doing all these other things and, and here's all the other markers of my success. I may not have book chapters, but I have, other, I have these <laughs> other and it's okay. Um, so yeah, competition or comparison can be, can be really detrimental to your well-being, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it can be, it can be helpful because if you are maybe falling behind on your PhD, um, sometimes I find like supervisors can be a little too nice mm-hmm. or, or colleagues can be a little too nice and be like, Oh no, you're doing just fine. You're fine. You're fine. And it's actually like, well, time slips away very quickly. So if you're not on top of getting your milestones and like, here we typically have four years to do a PhD. Right. Um, and, uh, but if you're falling behind, like there's milestones that you have to hit. And if you are falling behind on those, those deadlines can very quickly disappear. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it can be really hard to claw your way back. Absolutely. It's like one thing that we're speaking about in terms of this paper is when, when we ever had an issue that come up on the PhD, we would discuss it between ourselves. Um, and, you know, we'd hash stuff out or we'd prepare for our um, supervisory meeting. So the supervisor only ever really seen the good stuff or, you know, unless we hadn't sorted it as a group, it then progressed to the supervisor. So yeah. we had a potentially, there's a potential issue there where when you are a tight-knit group and you, you talk about everything that your supervisors don't actually see you struggle because mm. you've rehearsed it and, you know, all those little issues which... To, in the grand scheme of the project are quite minimal but if you had loads in them and you went to your supervisor for every single one they could be like well well actually i might need to give a spend more time with tony because he's struggling at this whereas when you've dealt with that as a group they only ever see the one big problem or no problems at all because you sorted it beforehand and it might give that so certainly there was a um, uh, so one member of our group talks about in terms of that fear of the supervisor then giving them extra work because they're like, oh, well, you've coped really well so far. Here's a hell of a lot more. And it's like, well, actually, no, I haven't coped. I've just not told you. <laughs> but I think there's also that that fear of um, having your supervisor see you struggle. Mm. And um, I know a lot of us in our uh, who have gotten this far in higher education <laughs> are high achievers and we are perfectionists in in along the perfectionism spectrum. Um, but then there, there becomes this fear of failure. It's like, okay, well, I've gotten this far. And if anybody sees me struggling, that is going to look really bad. And my supervisor can't see that I'm struggling. And my colleagues can't see that I'm struggling. And then you get into a place where, um, yeah, then all of a sudden that's where all the deadlines pass and all the timelines pass, right? Because you're stuck and you're too afraid to ask for help. Uh, and so I think about that a lot about how can we kind of break that down and make, make struggling normalized. And it's like, yeah, a PhD is really hard. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it's, I, I had added pressure on myself in terms of, you know, I had two years experience doing so many different projects that, you know, um, I think one of my friends in the piece kind of joked that I'd been in like SAS training, you know, I'd been in always like specialist military training before I joined the, uh, the PhD battle because it worked on so many different projects doing different stuff. Um, and I hit the ground running and we have in the UK, um, 
at the end of the first year, you'll do like a progression, uh, probably similar to your candidacy there yeah. where, you know, you become a proper PhD student. Yeah. I, I put a request in to skip that because I've done all the previous research and that kind of stuff. And I was granted that. I was granted to go straight on to the PhD. I didn't have to do um, the first year kind of like Viva exam or anything like that. So then the reason I did that, because I want, I set the stupid goal uh, of myself of finishing um, the PhD in two and a half years. Don't ask me why. I had it in my head of, I want to finish this PhD in two and a half years. Don't know why. That's something I've always done. I've always took a goal. And yeah. Found, right, you know, I'm not going to make it impossible. Excellent, right? Let's cut a couple of months off it. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so the only way to do that was to, to go straight into the PhD, to skip the year out. Yeah. Um, I got a couple of months into it and I was like, this Tony, why did you do this? This is a terrible idea. <laughs> um, so um, I managed to finish it in two years, eight months in the end. Um, but, I had that added pressure then of, right, well, I've kind of sold myself as a research superstar here when actually I'm not. I still got a lot to learn. And then those struggles, like you say, I couldn't say to my supervisors, oh, I'm really struggling with this or, you know, that. It just it just stayed with the group. Um, and one thing is, again, personality-wise, I know being someone who opens up particularly well when I have any struggles or anything like that, I'm much more someone who listens to other people's issues and I like sorting them mm. because we're in such a group. And it got to a point where I was like, look, everyone's struggling, that it's not a weakness. And it was that mindset of, you know, everyone's in the same boat. I mean, the, the, the boat might be sinking, but we're all in it together. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like, and that's when I opened up and said, look, you know, I'm struggling with this and struggling with that. And they really yeah. could help. And um, I think it's, it's in anything as well in life when if you have common struggles you become so much closer as a group and you know and I say I'm very grateful for my supervisors where you know they were very honest of any struggles that they had or any issues that were going on department level you know they were very open like oh I'm struggling with this I say well, well if they're open to being struggling then then surely I can um and it's a, but I think it is a personality thing. Not every, not every supervisor is like that. Not every team is. Not every person's going to be like that. But yeah, if we can normalise struggling, yeah. um, I think it'd be a hell of a lot better place. Because when I realised, I was like, oh well, actually everyone else has the same issues. Like typically, um, imposter syndrome. You know, yeah. that's something I, I did not have before I started the PhD at all. I was over, probably overconfident um, as yeah. a person. <laughs> Um, and then I got the PhD and I was just like, wow, what am I doing? You know, like, you know, here and, and then realized why wow, everyone's got that same, um, you know, and I think actually the people who are overconfident in the PhD, um, are probably the ones who don't actually realize what they're doing. <laughs> you know, if you're super, if you're like, oh, everything's fine and you know, there's no issues whatsoever. There probably is an issue. They just haven't seen it or they just ignored it. Um, because they say PhDs are super hard um, and everyone does struggle. And I think if you pass yourself off as someone who's not struggling at all, you know, there's, there's no, there's no star at the end of a PhD in terms of like, Oh, you finished it in, in less than three years and you had no issues. Well done. It's an extra, oh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. Uh, so yeah, I think, yeah, normalizing struggle is important. And that's the same for academics as well, you know, in terms of, I see a lot on Twitter um, about, you know, overworking and glamorizing overworking. Yeah. What you count as work. Um, and I think, I think it is a generational shift as well. I think, you know, people our age and that kind of stuff going through that we're a lot more open, particularly to older members of staff who, who do glamorize overworking. And, you know, that's, that's always been their ethos and fine. You know, that's the way they live their life. But 
I don't particularly want to be in an industry that glamorizes overworking and a lot of my my colleagues in you know certainly from the phd uh, similar ages backgrounds they don't want that so there might be a shift in the future but we still got a long way to go yeah like so around that idea of work like i distinctly remember i think i was in third i did five years of undergrad because i did two degrees um so i think it was like fourth year something like that but i did really well in a course and um I hope this professor never listens to this because it's a really (laughs) funny story. Uh, So the way this course was set up, you really only had to do well in like the first half of the course, like the first half of the material and uh, or whatever part of the material related to your final paper. And I really struggled with this course. It was syntax. It was very hard. uh, But I, I understood like the first third maybe <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> so I ended up doing just fine because I knew like what I knew I knew really well yeah. and uh and actually the professor emailed me and said you know like I think you do really well in graduate school and I just like laughed <laughs> One. <laughs> because, because I was like oh like you don't even know I wasn't paying attention like half the time once I had decided oh I only need to know this and this is too hard for me right now like I, I, I was, uh, um, checked out. Uh, but then I laugh more now because I realize actually in a master's and PhD, you really only need to know that much. It's yeah. just you need to know it better. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so maybe she did know that, that I was only like really doing well on one piece. Um, but, uh, uh, one of the reasons why I was just like, yeah, no, I'm never going to grad school. I don't want that life was because I saw that if I had a female professor, she was divorced, she was a single parent, she was single, no children, um, those sorts of things was what I saw a lot of. And there is maybe a singular example here and there of a woman who seemed to have her life together in terms of personal life as well. But then I knew that those professors were also writing grant applications until 3 a.m. and those sorts of things. And that wasn't the life I wanted. Mm. And it took a long time and several other professors (laughs) then encouraging me to go to graduate school to realize, no, like you probably can create the life you want. Um, Mm. But then I did also very much fall into that trap of overworking um, in like the first two years of my PhD. Master's was, was pretty okay. Um, but the first two years of my PhD, mostly because I was also doing like the um, Graduate Students Association and that took a lot of time, uh, but getting into that trap of working 10 to 12 hours a day and things like that. So how do or how have you or how do you avoid that overworking trap or or you're, you're right because it's it's rewarded, it's glorified. Um, the more you work or the more you complain about how much you work, it seems to be rewarded. So how do we how do we overcome that? Yeah, so for me, um, this kind of harks back to my time as a research assistant where it got to a point when, you know, the contract was ending and I was working stupid hours of the day. And I said, so this is not sustainable. As much as I loved that job, um, because the amount of skills it got me was just unbelievable. I can't stress enough. If you want to do a PhD, go away and do a research assistant for a year at least because it's invaluable. But... With that, you know, research assistant, you're at the bottom of the food chain. Um, the pay is terrible. Um, and you get given all of those terrible jobs, which, you know, um, that's why PIs never do interviews usually They or transcribing. You know, they give that yeah. to someone else to do, you know, <laughs> or you're coding for SBSS, all those kinds of jobs, which are great. You say when you're 
you know, and I'm very grateful because I was in that position, still very young, straight out of uh, masters, you know, perfect training. But it is incredibly boring. It's a lot, a hell of a lot of work. You're working all hours of the day. And I said, right, I had, a, had the uh, whole of August off before I started the PhD in September. And I was like, right, that, uh, that can't be sustainable. Let's have a new system, right? I'm going to work Monday to Thursday. I'm going to have Friday, Saturday, Sunday off on the basis of if I have three days off, then that's going to recharge my brain and I'm going to be a lot more um, productive because there was a friend I had, um, I won't mention his name, but he was a person who would work, like if I ever have a company, he's the first person I'm going to employ because you know he will get the work done. He'll keep working until it's done. Problem is though, he wouldn't be very efficient and there's something for me as a personality. I always want to try and find efficiencies and something that, uh, say H105 kind of got used to me saying was don't work harder, work smarter. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to find efficiencies. So I was like, right, if I'm going to work every single day, seven days a week, you know, 12 hours a day, my brain's going to fry out. It's not going to be productive at all. So on the first meeting I had, so I just got the, the PhD scholarship. I had my first meeting with um, my supervisors and I said to them, right, guys, I'm going to work Monday to Thursday. Um, I'm going to work 8.30 till, till 4, there or thereabouts. Not going to answer emails on Friday. Not going to answer emails on the weekends. Happy with that. And they were a little bit taken aback. <laughs> <laughs> I was on field work with um, uh, my main supervisor just before I, before I was graduating. And I said, thinking back, Tim, what was, what was your, you know, your thoughts of that? And he went, to be with you, Tony, when you left the room, we both looked at each other and said, who the hell does he think he is telling us what he's <laughs> going to do? And then he said, but then we turned to each other and said, you know what, he's going to be a great PhD student because he knows what he wants to do. He's very assertive and he's set those boundaries already, which is brilliant. Um, and so in those first two months, I stuck to that religiously, Monday to Thursday. I didn't look at anything outside of those times and it worked great. And I found actually that the other people in doing the PhDs who were working all hours, I, I, my lit review was done in like two months of starting because I was just focused. I knew that come four o'clock, that's it. I'll go do something else. My brain was so much more clearer. Yeah. So I tried to stick with that. And that did stay mostly throughout most of the PhD until it got to the final write-up bit where I realized, actually, you know what? Those nine to, you know, that eight till four, uh, Monday to Thursday, doesn't quite work because there's just so much to write yeah. that you're going to have to go above and beyond now. And another time as well, like I found that when I was writing, um, certainly writing up and editing, that I worked better in the evening for the edit. So I would shift that around. And I did realize, oh, I'm working a Friday now or I'm working a weekend. And it did slowly creep up. And similar to academia, again, you know, I, I'm paid for three days a week. Um, I tend to work Monday to Wednesday. Um, and in slack times of the year when you don't have any teaching, don't have any marking, yeah, I stick to that absolutely fine. I get to work, log in at um, you know, half eight, uh, eight o'clock usually actually. Um, I'll leave at four. Um, but then the last two months, for example, uh, had quite a bit of teaching load again. We had all the marking, the map stuff. I was working six days a week. Um, so, but there's no way around. If I didn't do those extra days, then someone else has to pick up that work and they're already maxed out. Um, well, I think it's important for me now, being in the summer, uh, all I have is my dissertation students to look after. 
I'm going to go back to the three days a week. Um, so I've been on leave for 12 days. I've not looked at a single email. I dread to see when I log in tomorrow <laughs> how many I've got. Um, but I think it's important to have that break and to, to go above and beyond when you have to, when yeah. it's, you know, it is needed. But to make sure, and the good thing as well, all the other staff members in the department know I work Monday to Wednesday. And, you know, if I reply outside of those work hours, it's because I want to. It's not because yeah. I'm looking to check. Um, and I think setting, similar to say the first day of the PhD, setting those expectations, setting those boundaries and sticking to them. And you've got to be quite brave in that as well, because there are people who look at you and go, all right, well, you're not dedicated. And I've heard that before. You're not dedicated to the role or to academia because you're only working three days a week. And it's like, well, no, I'm only paid three days a week. If you yeah. pay me a full-time contract, <laughs> I'll work full hours. <laughs> um, so it's it's all about relative, relativity, isn't it? And, you know, um, that stuff. But it is important. I would say I would massively stress this to PhD students is do not feel guilty about taking a break. In fact, I think it's an imperative that you do have weekends off because you've got family and friends. Your PhD is not going to last forever. Once it's done, you don't want to alienate every single you know, family member, every single friend, relationships, you know, they go on, they go on as the PhD is going on, they're going to go on afterwards. Don't alienate those people. You've got other hobbies as well. You know, make use of walking, photography, cycling, uh, typically what I used to do on my weekends and my Fridays. Make use of them, you know, that that's your way time. Your, your brain never switches off from the PhD, really, um, unless you can find those hobbies, which you can switch off for an hour, two hours, it's going to help you. You're going to be so much more productive. And I'm a massive believer of the four day working week. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's because I've kind of proved, you know, if I can finish the PhD in two years, eight months from start to finish, only ever really working Monday to Thursday, uh, bar the last, you know, two, three months of the PhD when I worked, you know, four or five days, if I can do that, everyone else can, um, you know, there's, there's no reason to do that at all. It's expectations. It's how you work, how efficient you are. Um, yeah, I'm a firm believer in that. But it, it, it's a real challenge. Like you say, in academia, it's all about overworking. But I'm not. I'm not keen on that. I like I like having a rest. Um, I like it. I enjoy my weekends. Um, and I say, but it, it's just then when you have that chatter of you're not dedicated, brush it off. You know, just, are they paying you? No, the university's paying you. Are you still delivering? Yes. In practice, you're probably delivering more than those people who say that, oh, I'm working over the hours. And oh, look at me, I worked... 500 hours last week you know it's not possible to do <laughs> um, you know you see it all the time on twitter yeah so yeah, yeah. Just, just, just be brave in, in setting those boundaries and sticking to them um and you'll get your rewards you know you will uh, so yeah i think um you make some really good points there i recently read the book uh deep work by cal newport and he is like a super uh productive uh academic but also writes mm. books about about productivity and about like right. being a good student and those sorts of things. And he preaches exactly that. It's like, if you are only able to work from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., that means you make choices and you prioritize. And so you make choices not to waste time on social media, not to spend an hour at the water cooler, um, those sorts of things so that you're more focused. And when you are more focused, the work you produce is better and you produce it faster. So there's huge benefits there. Um, and then one thing that I've noticed for myself is that if I consider like every time uh, a new opportunity comes up, I consider, mm. okay, how many hours do I have in my week for work and can I fit it in? Um, yep. cause one thing like 
uh, is typical in, in my program is that you have your PhD work, but then you on top of that, you're a research assistant or a teaching assistant or uh, like an adjunct or special instructor as well. So um, I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately and being someone who tends to take on more than I should. Uh, I was yeah, thinking, I'm the same. <laughs> yeah, of like, okay, well, if I take on this, this means I only have this much time for my PhD. And I also set out originally to finish in three years, mm. um, which I think, uh, well, I'm at the end of year three now, so obviously that's not happening. Uh, but I think I still very much can finish in four. Uh, Absolutely. But um, it's, also, yeah, you, you stretch your work to fit whatever timeline you have. And so, yeah, when you set a goal, like I'd recommend everyone sets a slightly unachievable goal for finishing yeah. because that way you're like, okay, well then I have to be really focused and I can't do all these side things. And that's going to be better in the long run because then I can say yes to other opportunities later on. Absolutely. And say, um, you mentioned there about taking uh, too much on or only saying yes to projects that you can fit in. So say for me currently, senior lecturer, that's part of my role. My overall is assessment officer, uh, which isn't paid. It's all voluntary. Mm. Um, I'm an editor for, you know, international of students partners that takes up a lot of my time. And I'm also a research assistant for some other projects. Um, in my days off uh you know, I kind of do that. So that's great. Cause that's extra cash for me, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's finding the time to that. And, Something during the PhD became quite apparent to me, and I think this is something that new PhD students need to look out for, or if you are in a PhD, is because I worked as a research assistant and I gained all those skills, I also gained an insight into the typical academic, the ones that say they want to step on people to get where they want to go. They want, to, they want someone yeah. to do their work for them yeah. so they can take the glory. So when I was in the PhD, I noticed an awful lot of academics in particular departments where they wanted PhD students to do the real crap work, you know, that that basic research assistant stuff where they're not going to pay them for it. It's experience. It's typical, you know, like, oh, we'll pay you in, um, in exposure, you know, if you're yeah, a, yeah. an artist or whatever. Um, and I was very wise this straight away because I'd seen it happen previously. And I'd seen people who were like, oh, wow, I'm getting a, this professor is esteemed and they've asked me to do this. And it's like, no, they're only asking you because they, they can't be bothered doing it themselves and it's free labor. Um, only say yes to projects which are actually, if you feel that you're going to get benefit from them, yeah. then, then say yes. So one thing I, I started to do towards the end of my research system post, I used to say yes to everything because I hadn't learned yet that then when you start saying no to near enough everything and only yes to those particular ones, that's when people are like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, so you actually really appreciate what I'm offering because you've said yes, you've said no to everything else. Whereas if you say yes to everything else, then everyone's going to be like, oh, well, I'll just ask Tony, so he's going to say yes, he's a yes man, you know, and, and they don't particularly care, they don't value. Whereas if you say no to a lot of stuff and only yes to stuff that you're going to particularly get benefit from, then people are going to appreciate that. They're going to value your time more because you've been very selective. So, mm -hmm. so the reason I took on the role of assessment officer, because I was like, that's going to help me because I'm in a temporary contract. Um, you know, it was only a 12 month post when I started. Um, it's going to help develop me as a researcher. If it does, uh, if it does finish, and if it, sorry, it helps me develop the lecture, because if it does finish uh, and it doesn't get renewed, at least I can go to another institution or another industry and have that extra bit of experience of, right. of dealing with um, you know students and academic stuff and regulations the research projects um, 
I had the experience of um, SBSS, whereas the research team didn't. But it was a project that I, I was really passionate about, and I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Let, let's let's be part of that. It's going to help me. It's going to help you. It's going to help me as well. So you want to be in. Ta- you want to say yes to projects which they're going to get benefit from, but you are. You don't want it where they're going to get all the benefit and you get nothing out of it. Um, and I mean, that's what a lot of students need to realise when they start is, you know. Only say yes to what you're going to get benefit from. Don't be taken for a mug, which I think is unfortunate in the UK. Um, that you know, PhD students is a lot of forced labour. I think you know where they. Yeah. You, it's inexperienced, but for like, for me, if you've made up your mind at the start, you want to go into industry, then what's the point of saying yes to teaching students or you know doing particular research stuff if that's not what you're going to do for the rest of your career? If yeah. you want to be a, a lecturer, then then yeah, absolutely say yes to teaching that lab or teaching that class because it's going to help you in the long run, but be selective about what you pick. Yeah. What about that fear, though, that if you say no too many times, people will stop asking you? Yeah, um, yeah, it's tough balance. Um, and to be fair, yeah, sometimes it probably has happened to me where, you know, I might have been looked over for a particular thing because I had said no so many times. Um but I think those who, who value you, who know your worth and know what you stand for and, and know your skills, if if you are the right person for the job, they will still ask you. And if like, I've had it before, I've had someone say, like, I know, Tony, you, you, you might probably going to say no to this, but you're the first person I thought of. And I was like, well, actually, I'm going to say yes to this one. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, yeah, that is the risk, but I'd rather have that risk than... Yeah. Than, than, because the problem there... One of the problems I actually had um, here is I said yes to a project, absolutely loved it. Another project came along, um, and I was like, "Oh, I really like that project as well." And and the two competing PIs wanted me on it, but I only had a set number of hours in 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 the contract, so I had to say no to that. So that's right. If you say yes to everything, then there might be projects where. So I, I'm lucky that I really liked both projects, but I might have said yes to that project, not liked it. That other brilliant project came along, and I can't say yes because I've already said yes to the other right. one. Right, yeah. So it's also reverses. So yeah, yeah, granted, you might have people who won't ask you because you keep saying no. If you keep saying yes, you might not have the opportunity of the other one anyway. So it's really tough balance, really, to be honest. That's so true. And I think, like, I definitely have that fear myself. But then, mm. as you said, like, reflecting on it, um, I have had people email and say, like, I know you're really busy and the answer is probably no, but like any chance you have time for this project. And, uh, and sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And I mean, I've also like, I need to not do this and I'm getting better at not doing it, but, um, I've said yes to a project or said like, I'm interested, let's talk more. Mm. And then been able, then had to actually back out and say, you know what, like now that I know like how many hours you're actually looking for, I know the scope of this project. Like I just really can't. Um, and I think, I mean, backing out at that point is probably a lot better than taking it, signing the contract (laughs) and then backing out later. But that being said, I mean, like at least in, in Canada, like you can, you could quit any job at any time. Um, I also, I also tell students this too. It's like, you know, like if you have taken on too much, like you can drop things, you don't just have to finish it because you have to finish it. Um, and people will respect that instead of getting lukewarm work product from you uh they'll respect if you say look i really just can't commit to this anymore i need to i need to step away 
Yeah, it's tough as I said, similar, similar happened to me recently in terms of, let's say, because I was committed to this project, but I had a number of hours free um, in the contract to make up to like a full-time post. Yeah. Um, but then I started more, when I said yes originally, and we were like, yeah, we're, we're going to discuss it a bit more and what's involved. Um, it kind of dawned on me. I was like, you're probably stretching yourself a bit too thin. Like it's doable, but do you really want that added pressure? Um, and then because he was a person that I, I really respect, you know, it was a, um, it was a basically an old boss I, I'd had and they were running this project and, you know, I absolutely love the bones of them and, you know, and I didn't want to disappoint them, but then I had to say, make that decision of, you know what, it's going to be best for both if, if, if I don't take this post and you yeah. find someone else to do it. And, and that was really hard. Um, and it's only really when they suggested it, they were like, you know, you know what, Tony, are you sure? Are you honestly sure? I'm happy to have your project, but are you, are you sure? Is this what you want? And then I was like, you know what? That's the door open for me to say, actually, you know, I probably am spreading myself too thin. Um, but I didn't want to disappoint them because I knew them. And I think it's easier if you don't know someone, but when you've had that working relationship with someone, yeah. they come personally to you to say, look, I want you on this project. You know, it's, it's really tough, but like, you know, they were more than happy and I know there's no hard feelings whatsoever um, with that person because we're looking at future projects now together. Um, yeah. But it's it's tough and I don't think there's no, no one can tell you how to go about doing that. It's just uh, it's just one of those things you just got to bite the bullet and just say, yeah, I can't do it. And it, it really takes practice. Um, there is a, a book that came out a couple of years ago, Shonda Rhimes, creator of Grey's Anatomy and all those other shows. And oh, okay. she had that book, uh, The Year of Yes, I think it's called. But basically where she just started saying yes to things and yes to people and yes to herself and all these sorts of things. And so I joke that I need to write the book called The Year of No. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> and I think like most uh, overachieving graduate students need this book. Um, Absolutely. I haven't gotten around to writing it yet, but one of these days, when I've actually figured out how to say how to say no, um, and then I was actually talking to a couple of colleagues recently about this as well, and how, um, yeah, there's this fear, there's this atmosphere in some departments where if you say no to one thing, they'll like never ask you again because you've then offended them. Um, like a school board in our area is notorious for if you turn down a, a teaching contract with them, you, they will not offer you another contract for like five years. Wow. Yeah. And it, so there's this, there's this mentality that this will happen. And so, um, but we also have a set of scholarships where uh, you can then only work so many hours a week because you need to have time to actually do your, do what you're being funded for. Yeah. Uh, and so we talked about how actually you can then use that to say no very pragmatically and say, like, I would love to, however, now's not at the right time because I've already committed to my maximum hours of work. Um, and that helps because then you're not saying no to the person. You're not saying no to the project. You're just like, literally, I'm overcommitted. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. that's important. Because you mentioned that in terms of the PhD because I didn't really commit to many projects during the PhD other than um, the editorial role yeah. and the odd little tiny research project here and there because, like you say, I think people lose sight of the fact that, you know, the PhD is the main goal. That's what you're paid for or that's what yeah. you're paying for yourself you know, if you're self-funded, that's the main goal. Don't let all these other projects and all these extra experience, which are, which are nice to have, don't get me wrong, but if you yeah. don't get the PhD, all that stuff is pointless. So, yeah, don't lose sight of the fact that the PhD is the main goal. That's your priority. And it shouldn't be the case of, 
oh, have I got time for my PhD? It should be, oh, yeah. have I got time for the other stuff? <laughs> yeah, I I think that's a really good tip um, that I should maybe try doing is blocking out the time <laughs> for the PhD first and yeah. in the data analysis phase. And so blocking out the time to do that first and then seeing where other things can slot in. Because um, I've also always had the mentality of, well, it's not just about the piece of paper because mm. anyone could go get a piece of paper. Like, yeah. yes, a PhD is hard. Um, and particularly the master's level, I remember talking to, to colleagues about, oh, well, no matter what our grades are, we're all going to get the same piece of paper. And mm. to me, it was never about the piece of paper. It was about the experience and the opportunities that that journey affords. And so yeah. I think I've carried the mentality into my PhD with the idea that it's also about, it's about your CV, really. It's about what nice. opportunities and what things do you curate along the way that make you well-rounded and make mm. you eligible for all those roles that sure like you need to have a phd to get those roles but it's all these other things that are going to actually make you eligible for it but at the same time if you never get that phd you're still never going to be <laughs> eligible for the role even if you've done yeah. all of these other things um, exactly yeah um, and it's a case of as well in terms of like you've got to come to a point in your phd career where you're like right what are those extra things what 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 have i put on the cv right, you know what, I've hit a couple of those goals. Um, I mean, that's good enough for now. Yeah. I can always come back and add, right, now I'm going to block all my time out of the PhD. Like, I I've done enough, I think, you know, personally, I've done this, I've done that. The CV looks all right. You know, well, I'm going to take a break now and I'm going to focus on the PhD and get that done, um, you know, in a short time. So then I can then approach those roles. And if I need to develop them, then great, I'll have loads of time to develop those extra other skills that you know I might potentially be lacking. Um, but yeah, just don't don't disregard that that PhD to get that done is important. And you know, I, I my my uh, supervisor made a big thing of you know get it done in three years, Tony, because you're going to be looking at uh, you know a competitive job market. Um, you know, sitting in the UK for academics. You know, are they going to take someone who's got a lot of the skills, but not all of them, were finished in, in three years. Or are they going to take someone who's got, you know, every single skill in the book, but it's taken them 15 years to do a PhD? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, which actually one of his students did take 15 years oh, uh, no. <laughs> to do <the> PhD. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's that balance. And, it, and, it's, and again, because we don't know, we don't really particularly know what individual departments are looking for, what different universities, what skills. One your list of CV skills that you might have might be overqualified for one place and then underqualified. Yeah. So you can't win. You can't please everybody. But like I say, just focus on the PhD. Um, and that was always my mantra and to get it done in time, on time. And uh, once I was happy that, you know, I'd, I'd had the skills needed for the CV, then, then yeah, I just focused on, on the PhD solely. Um, because you, you said that you're in the data analysis phase and, you know, that could be a super quick job. But it could be then you into a rabbit hole and, you know, mm. it, takes, it takes forever and there was nothing worse. And you'll probably find yourself being on a roll, you know, you're, oh, right, okay, Monday morning, oh, I better get into SPSS analysis. And you don't really want to do it, but you get into it and you're like, oh, this is interesting. And then before yeah. you realize that the day's done and you want to carry on, but then you're like, oh, I've got another project to do. Whereas I didn't have that. I was like, oh, great. I can just carry on and, and delve into it. You know, you don't want to get out of that flow because once you're into that flow of working, you don't really want to come out of it. So it's quite hard to get yourself back into it. Um, but yeah. again, my caveat to all this though is 
I was in a very privileged position in terms of the funding was enough. I could support myself. I didn't have to look out for another job, uh, you know, to get the extra cash in. So while I do say all this, you know, again, I was in a very privileged position um, to be able to afford myself to say no to things. So when I realized not everybody is, uh, you know, your listeners probably thinking, well, I can't do that. I can't say no because I need the money. Yeah, granted, I appreciate that. But you still got to consider, you know, potentially a short-term pain for a long-term game, potentially. Um, but yeah, I do realize that I wasn't a very privileged position. Yeah. But yeah, especially when you consider like tuition costs and things like that. Um, particularly like we have, uh, well, it's similar in the UK. Like we have different uh, tuition rates for domestic versus international students. Yeah. And uh, so as a domestic student right now, and especially since I've taken away some of the fees because we're not on campus, yeah. uh, my tuition is really low. And so that's not really a um, incentive to finish. But for mm. some people, it's like, well, you could be working more or you could just finish and then save all those tuition fees. Uh, and so really like balancing all of those. I think everything we've talked about today is really about like the balance. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Balance and everything. Uh, yeah. And it is so like, you know, I've not mastered that balance at all. There are times when I've absolutely nailed it and, you know, everything's going well. There's other times, I said, like the past previous month where that balance was so out of whack, you know, there was hardly any time for, you know, personal stuff. It was all work. Um, and it's like a roller coaster. It does go up and down. But I think yeah. if you're aware of, if you're aware of stepping over that balance and you try and get yourself back to it, you don't want to, like my, my key thing is, that incredible six day working week, you know, when you're only getting paid for free for two months, uh, just gone. That to me, that should never be the norm. Yeah. And that balance, that's not a balance, you know, so I want to get back to where I was. And I think if you recognize where your own personal, you know, nice equilibrium balance is, if you can work towards that, sometimes you might go under it, sometimes you might go over it, but if you keep working towards that, I don't think you'll go wrong. Um, Cause when you got to think about your own health as well, mental health, it, it's just no one good if, you know, if you've cracked because you just, there's no balance. You're not looked after yourself. Um, it's much well in the world, as much as your colleagues are super supportive and your university might be supportive, there's always someone to replace your role. You know, the, the job <laughs> is not your life. Uh, I mean, as, as harsh as that may sound, you know, um, I am quite a realist that I know, you know, if I, you know, something happened to me tomorrow, someone else is going to fill that role instantly. You know, it's just the way it is. Um, so to do what you have to do, go above and beyond when you have to, but also look after yourself as well. And, you know, um, just stick to that balance because you are replaceable. You're not a superstar um, as much as you might think you are, uh, which is something I always used to think it was. And there's been quite an eye opener doing the PhD is actually, you know, there's people well better than me. <laughs> yeah. And I think, yeah, like that pressure too. I remember, um, when I was taking my courses and mm. when you get a semester of A's, you're like, Oh, now the pressure is really on because I need to yeah. keep those A's or you get an award and, or a scholarship that's competitive. And it's like, okay, now I got to keep up that level of work because uh, I have to keep proving myself um, rather than I think, as you were alluding to saying like, well, I've proven myself and now mm. I can, I can step back a little bit and, and focus on what needs to get done. And there will be other times to, to prove myself again or, or to um, uh, prove myself in new areas. And that time will also come. But uh, just get that PhD done. <laughs> yeah, just, just get it done. 
I appreciate that. I think that's like, that's what I need to hear this week. That's good. Going into like, um, the, the fall semester and like finishing up the summer, but, uh, also going into the fall semester and realizing like what I have planned and what I need to need to do. Um, and this idea that like, we have uh, maximum times to completion. So I have six years to finish. Um, and I just found out I, I was only going to have funding for four years, but now I found out I have funding for a fifth year if I need it. Excellent. Which is good, but dangerous because then I'm like, oh, yeah. well, I could take my time. And it's like, well, no, actually just, just focus and get it done. And then you don't need that fifth year of funding. You can go do other things. So. Yeah. And it's like me. So, so like that group H105, you know, they, they, they had three years. They all start at the same time as me. And uh, one or two are close to finishing, but some, some quite aren't. And because I was so hard, I'm always so hard on myself of like, you know, get this done. Like, here's a goal. I push them to, to get it done. And I still, you know, even though we're not in the same institution I've left, we still keep in contact. And yep. I mean, they do appreciate me nagging them to be like, get this done. Uh, you know, I want to see you graduate because I can't stress enough that, you know, your undergraduate, uh, uh, graduation is brilliant because it's the first time you've done it. Yeah. Master's one is super boring. Isn't it for me? It was the same institution. Yeah. I've done it before. Um, you know, and, and he was, yeah. You know, oh, yeah, great. We've got another piece of paper, super. With a PhD one and then say getting doctor on your bank cards and all that kind of stuff. I can't stress how nerdy it is, but how brilliant it is to have it. So, yeah, um, you know, just to walk around and say, um, like my mum and dad always, you know, take the mick when I get a post coming through somewhere, you know, it's got a doctor on it and they're like, oh, look at you. And it's like, hey, I've, I've earned it. I've worked oh, yeah. It. You better you better believe it's going to say doctor on everything. Absolutely. Um, absolutely everything. Um, yeah. and I guess we've been talking for a long time, but I have one last question for you because you are finished. Mm -hmm. Um, did you feel, and this idea of like the fear of finishing as well, that like, because you are going into an unknown job market, that it's, it's safer just to not finish. And it's safer just to, to keep taking on these side projects that, you, that will pay the bills, um, than it is to finish and then be thrust into the job market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the uh, the biggest shocks to me, I suppose, was that I had this realization when I was preparing for Fiverr. Was I, I've always been, I've always had like, I've always had close close friends and stuff, but I can be quite hard on. I'm quite black and white, you know, and um, I say stuff sometimes, and it might take the wrong way because it's very very to the point. And and I just I mentioned before, I don't typically open up well, but then I had you know these group of five friends who you know, with their day in, day out, every single day through all the highs and lows. And it wasn't just PhD stuff. It was, you know, family life or personal stuff that's that gone on. We'd all supported each other through everything. And it's the first time and he really had fully opened up to like, you know, a group of people and I'd let all the vulnerabilities out and stuff and that kind of stuff. And then I realized why did I set the goal of, you know, two and a half years, two years, eight months, whatever. What was the point of rushing it? Because now I, you know, the day of the Viber was so bittersweet when they said, you know, well done, Dr. Cliff, you know, happy days. <laughs> and then I went back to the office and, you know, they were all there. We were all having a good friend. And then I, I sat there and I was like, this is my last day. And when the day I cleared my office out was heartbreaking because yeah. I, I, I personally feel I developed the most I ever have as a person, not just a researcher, but as a person during those three years because of them and because of the environment and, and to then step out into the unknown and not have that support system, which you've had for three years, 
day in day out not having that like it was so I can't stress enough how funny that group was and how you know how brilliant and some of the experiences I mean I would love to write a book on some of the experiences we had as a group because we would you know we'd hang out outside of work and stuff and it was brilliant we went on holidays together yeah it was nice but then yeah to say like right I'm on my own now you know that's a brand I don't and at that point as well I I still wasn't sold on academia I was like well, I might go into industry I might do uh, lecturing I didn't quite know um, I mean I was fortunate enough that when um, I was applying for different roles um, and this role came up new, new stuff um, happened to be say in, in the old department and some of the old people who were there were still there so I still had some connections that I oh if I do get this job I've still got some connections of those people there but again that was always a very colleague versus student or you know I was a very junior colleague way back mm-hmm. then um, and it wasn't quite the same. And so, yeah, I was absolutely terrified of where this is going to go. And my big concern was, am I overqualified? You know, um, if I'm going to go into a different role, it's not academia. Um, right, you've done a PhD. Yeah, you've got a doctor title. But outside of academia, no one really cares. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and so then I had that fear of, well, have I limited? Because I didn't get any, any job offers over the summer. And then typically I accepted that I went for this job, got this job. And then I got four requests for interviews on the day. I said yes for this job. And they were all different roles. They were lecturing roles. They were an industry role. And the other one was more of a, um, like an admin kind of student support role. Um, and yeah, typical like buses, you know, they all come along at once. Um, but <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I picked the one I did because it was a leap of faith and it was a challenge. Um, and, I, you know, I get on so well with my colleagues in the department, but it, it is different. You know, they're, they're not H105. Um, and it took me a while. I'm quite, I keep looking back at those three years and living in the past almost of like, wow, that was perfect. And before I did the PhD, um, one of the colleagues I was working with said, make the most of your PhD years because despite how hard they might be, that is going to be the best couple of years of your life because if you have those supportive friends and you're only ever working for yourself, yeah. you're never going to get that again unless you're potentially, you know, you go into um, self-employment, but not many people do. You tend to say go into industry or academia. Yeah. Make the most of those three years or how many you usually do because it's golden. And I think as I got to that vibe, a stage, I realized that potentially, oh, as mentioned, I made the most of it. I didn't appreciate it for what it was. Um, mm. and so that's as well as get your PhD done my other bit of advice is despite all the struggles look at all the highs look at what you learn and appreciate what you're in because yeah. you're not going to get that experience again anywhere else it just does not exist yeah absolutely yeah awesome well thank you so much for uh, coming onto the podcast and chatting it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, you and catch up and uh, and I've learned things that I need to now go implement uh, <laughs> to get this PhD done. So thanks again and uh, all the best. And hope, hopefully we'll connect uh, soon in person. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Brian. Thank you to your listeners as well. I hope you've taken something away from that. Um, and I say if any of your listeners do have uh, any questions, Reva, um, then yeah, uh, get me on Twitter. I'm sure you'll put that in the, uh, in the description, the handle. Um, yeah, and I'm more than happy to to chat this stuff through say so being there um, and one thing I will say is you will get there you will get through it um, and it's say getting that doctor title is unbelievably good yeah <laughs> <laughs> excellent thank you Britt thanks 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Educate Me. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you to our audio producer, Sean Paris. Join us again next week for more stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. Until then, stay in school.